we've been able to flip that over and really celebrate the fact that we aren't ski and ski out, that you don't have these sort of, you know, made up villages down there that really the, the ski experience is just that. But what that means is when you get in the town of Banff, it's a real town. We've got lots of nightlife, nightclubs, you know, restaurants are open late. There's a whole bunch of them. The food scene is just exploding. And what we've seen is that people are looking for more than just the, the ski experience. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Big milestone for you today is I bring you the first storm skiing podcast with the head of a ski area or ski area operator in the incredible ski nation of Canada. Real quick, if you are new here, I need to help you get the most out of this podcast. You can do that by visiting stormskiing.com and subscribing to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is just a small part of this whole operation. And in fact, the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. There is an article on stormskiing.com that includes tons of additional context on our conversation, including maps, historical information, photos, and much more. Once you are on the email list, you will receive a minimum of 100 articles per year exploring the world of lift surf skiing in North America. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get into Canada, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 129, Pete Woods, President of Ski Big 3 Canada. Welcome, Canada. If you're new here, welcome. I am so fired up to have you. If you've been here the whole time, thank you for sticking around. Either way, let me explain what's happening here. I launched the Storm Skiing Podcast in 2019 with one mission, to get the story of the mountains that we all ski and love directly from the people who actually run them. You see, ski media for far too long has been hyper-focused on fetishizing supreme athletes and locals as the avatars of skiing and ski culture. As though the only way to truly love skiing was to immerse yourself in this fringe version of the sport, animated by a handful of people who were either very good at it 
or dedicated their lives to it. I've never, frankly, cared about either of those versions of skiing. I doubt I could name five pro skiers. And I have company. If you visit any of the hundreds of social media groups dedicated to various facets of North American skiing, almost no one anywhere is talking about the hucksters backflipping off cliffs or the dude living in a hammock so he can ski 200 days per year. What people are talking about is what impacts their ski day, their ski season, their skiing. They are talking about passes and lifts and trails and traffic. They are talking about how many days they skied and how many feet of vert they racked last Wednesday. They're talking about which mountain has the best tree skiing and who's cheap about grooming and who lets their mountains bump up and who will keep the lifts spinning into May. This is what skiers actually care about. Don't believe me? Go look. Exhibit A, the entire internet. Yet, what ski riders were covering, and have been almost exclusively covering for decades, is a fringe part of the sport that is hard for the average skier to relate to. In that vacuum, social media was filling the gap. And filling it poorly, obviously. So, in 2019, I launched the Storm Skiing Podcast with a focus on the Northeast, which, for my purposes, meant the six New England states, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. I would connect with the leaders of the ski areas and ski entities that populate this region and ask them the questions that everyone else was endlessly speculating on. After all, these were the people who made the decisions. These were the people who actually knew what the hell they were talking about. These were the people who had a direct impact on what your ski day and, by extension, your ski season actually looked like. For two years, I focused on the Northeast exclusively. By 2021, betting that this thing could scale, I was ready to take this thing national. I did so in September 2021. The growth was immediate and explosive, but I had a lot of work to do. If I was going to cover the entire country, I had to do it smart, and I had to do it well. I had a lot to learn. Nearly two years later, I feel really good about where the storm is in America. I am ready to grow this thing more, and there is no more logical place to go than up to Canada, one of the world's greatest ski nations and home to many and varied ski regions. And if I'm headed north, I figured there was no better place to begin than the glorious and gorgeous Banff National Park. Let's go. My guest today has been president of Canada's Ski Big Three since 2019. Ski Big Three works in conjunction with the three ski resorts in Banff National Park in Alberta, Banff Sunshine, Lake Louise, and Mount Norquay. Banff Sunshine features 12 lifts serving 3,358 acres of terrain on a 3,513-foot vertical drop. Lake Louise delivers 3,250 vertical feet, spread across 4,200 acres, served by 11 lifts. And Mount Norquay, the oldest ski area in the Canadian Rockies, sits on 1,650 vertical feet, with 190 acres of terrain served by six lifts. Established in 1885, Banff National Park is the oldest national park in Canada. Spread over 2,564 square miles, the park is listed as an UNESCO World Heritage Site. Prior to joining Ski Big 3 in 2014, 
He worked at Copper Mountain, Telluride, and Purgatory, which was then known as Durango Mountain Resort. Pete Woods is my guest. Pete, welcome to the storm. So looking forward to chatting with you today. How is everything going out west for you this morning? Hey, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's been a really great season. Actually, exceptionally strong finish. It has been a really fun year. It's been incredible to see the rebound and the borders opening. And uh, we definitely saw a huge bounce in our international visitation, which is critical. And what does that mean for Ski Big 3, Pete? Is that mostly U.S.? Do you get folks coming over from Europe or, or maybe even from Asia? Where do you see your biggest international bases from? Well, U.S. is number one for sure, and we've seen significant growth in the U.S., and we can get into that a little bit more later. But the U.K. has been a strong market for BAM for many, mm. many, many years. It used to be charter flights coming in four times a week on big planes uh, from oh, wow. London into Banff. Now it's moving completely to scheduled air and remains super strong. The other big market is the uh, Australian market. You can sort of see a trend here, so Commonwealth stacks really well. Um, New Zealand is a, another really good market and then mainland Europe. So mostly out of Germany. And so what's kind of different is that we see a fair amount of tour operator business coming from our international markets. That's quite a bit different than the U.S. resorts that I worked at, even though they're kind of more international or at least internationally known resorts. That's so interesting, Pete. I would not have guessed that from London or Germany just because the Alps are right there. And they have such a rich ski culture, so many ski areas, so many big and impressive ski areas. What do you think draws people out to Banff all the way from Europe? Well, the crave for good snow, you know, obviously the trends in Europe are kind of hit and miss. And so, you know, skiing off piste is another thing that uh, you don't get a whole lot of in Europe. And uh, it's something that we have quite a bit of in Banff National Park at, at all of our resorts. And so the combination of things uh, really have driven it. The other thing is, is that just... The crowding, uh, we just don't have it. We, we don't have a lot of crowds at our resorts. And the transportation that moves people in and out is quite a bit different than the transportation in Europe that can be a little bit more congested in general. So I think it's just in general that wide open spaces that people are, are looking to, to find. So it's obviously it's good for business when you get your international folks back. But I would imagine that there's a cultural richness as well that may have been missing for the past few seasons. Talk a little bit about that, Pete, and what it's been like to have more of an international mix of folks back in Banff. Oh, it's been so incredible. And you talk to any business owner in town and they would say the same thing. You know, you can stand on any street corner in Banff on almost any day and you'll hear four languages. It's a very, very international place year round. And so that just went away for the most part. And so having that back is incredible. We do see a lot of UK and Australian workforce that comes typically on a two-year visa. And they always bring a really fun energy and dynamic to the community. So that that is now back in full swing, which we didn't have. But I think that the overarching recovery of international has been exceptionally cool in that the Canadian market, because it couldn't go internationally, stayed domestic. And I'm sure the US saw the same thing. But we didn't see it go back to pre-pandemic levels. So you have this really nice mix of domestic and international instead of just being, you know, one-sided. Mm -hmm. As far as the U.S. folks go, the U.S. skiers, did those recover to pre-pandemic levels? Are you seeing more? Maybe there's an appetite to go check out Canada after being shut out for a couple seasons. What are the sort of trends you saw coming out of the United States skiers this winter? Well, we got really close to pre-pandemic out of the U.S. And I would say that the one limiter that we saw was just getting 
the scheduled error back online from all the key markets, which it got to by the time we got to March. And so we saw this incredibly strong tail end of the season, but it just took a little bit of time to get those flights back on. And now that they are, we're confident we'll see that that growth continue. So it's funny, Pete, we're talking about the season as though it's finished, but it's not. Yeah. And I think most of my listeners are really familiar with the late operators in the United States, Snowbird and Arapahoe Basin and Mammoth and Palisades Tahoe and Killington out east. But there are late operators in Canada as well. And your ski big three ski areas have a pretty strong tradition here. Lay this out for us. Where can we still go skiing up in Banff National Park? Well, Lake Louise is open through this weekend. So they'll be wrapping up this weekend and then Sunshine will go to the 22nd of May. And so they have an exceptionally long season. They work really, really hard to get to that every single year and they do it. And, you know, they're sitting on a four and a half foot base right now. And we'll see powder days for sure throughout several days in May. So talk about that tradition of staying open late because there's places like Telluride where you worked and they close the first week in April. Doesn't matter how much snow they have. This year had a great snow year. <laughs> they close the first week in April. That's just part of the tradition of that resort. Maybe that's tied to some sort of forest service lease. I don't really know. But the point is, some places have this tradition and some don't. Just talk about that tradition in Banff National Park and why this is so important to these ski areas to continue to provide this long season. Well, I think there's a few things. One of the things is that if you ask any local, what's the best time to visit Banff and Lake Louise during the winter, they would say April. It's when we have, you know, the longest days, it's a little bit warmer. We see a lot of good powder days and you get the, the national park experience within the town at the same time because everything's starting to green up. And so, um, you know, you, you can kind of get that double win in terms of people that are after the national park, which we see you know, 4 million visitors a year come through that park with a, a ski experience, which is incredibly unique. So the ski areas, one interesting thing about staying open so late, these ski areas have not had the snowiest winter. You have 265 inches at sunshine. I believe that's a little below average. 218 at Lake Louise, which is above average, and 114 at Norquay, which is right about average. I guess two questions here. Number one, how did those numbers translate to conditions on the hill? How were those ski seasons from a skiing point of view? And number two, how do you reconcile this longer season with these lower snowfall totals? And you might see it a snowbird or a mammoth, which get, you know, this year they've gotten over 800 inches of snow. Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. The first thing I learned is that in, in Canada, pretty much every flake that hits the ground stays there to almost, you know, mid-April. So the accumulation of just even a couple of inches a day really adds up over time in that in the base and uh, just the overall snow conditions. Um, so we tend not to see those huge powder days, but we do have that really consistent winter season and snow conditions. So we were a little bit down and it was actually a pretty slow start to the season this year. And then, it, and then it, like I was mentioning before, it just kind of kicked on. Once we got into February, which is quite a bit later, and I think everyone's memories are short <laughs> because the last several years, it's been an incredible start. We're opening almost 100% by mid-November in the last couple seasons. And so this oh, wow. was probably what is a bit more of an average and, and normal year. So Pete, are you still out there skiing personally? I, I know you, you get out quite a bit. Yeah, it's been a really, really fun year. I've had a chance to ski quite a bit, both inbounds and out of bounds. Yeah, it was a, it's been a really fun one. This has been especially fun because my wife 
got into skiing more than she ever has this year. So there's even a more compelling reason to get out. So it's been super fun to, to see her kind of push her limits and get in and out of her comfort zone a little bit. Did she have a favorite spot among the three? You know what? It was, it really kind of depended on the conditions and what we were trying to ski. She's just started getting into ski touring this year and uh, trying to push her comfort level in softer snow. She's always been kind of a front side bluebird type of skier. And so this year we were able to kind of push it out, get on the backside of the mountain. So I would definitely say, you know, the backside of Lake Louise for sure was an area where we spend a fair amount of time. How do you try to work the mountains, Pete? I know you like uphill. So kind of lay this out for us. What do you do on a pow day? What do you do for a corn day? What do you do for a bluebird day? What are your go-tos or or do you follow a different agenda? Like you follow where you have a meeting or, or something like that? Yeah, sometimes I'll do that for sure. What's kind of interesting is if there's that pent-up demand powder day where, you know, it's been a little bit of time before the big snow cycles come through, everyone makes a full sprint to uh, Sunshine and Lake Louise, and they hop right over Norquay. And you can just run up the hill in five minutes and get some incredible laps on that big chair there when everybody's heading into the other mountains. How about a groomer day, a firm day? Where do you go? If it's softening up, uh, in the morning, you got long frontside groomers at Lake Louise. Sunshine does a really, really good job. They kind of have this undulated sort of roly-poly terrain at Sunshine. And uh, and so they've got some really fun groomers where you can lap their heated bubble chair, which is a really great way to connect up a bunch of stuff that a lot of people don't tend to do. So you can kind of get these little pieces and parts that link back up to that chair. How about uphill? What's the uphill scene like? I know this is something that, that you like to do in the mornings, kind of get that workout in. Are all three mountains uphill friendly? Do they have routes? Kind of lay that scene out for us. You know, it's so funny, Stuart, is that having moved from Summit County, where uphill uphill culture is just massive, and and the growth of it is incredible. It's really not big in Banff National Park. It is quite odd. Not that many people do it. It's just not a cultural thing there. Now, when you're talking about backcountry, it's it's huge. So that's a very different thing. But Within the resorts, they do have routes, but it's pretty rare to see people. There's a ski out at Sunshine that goes from the the bottom of the gondola that goes to the top of the gondola that really is kind of what sets up the base for Sunshine. And there's a fair amount of uphill that happens up that uh, ski out road. But I'm still, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know, let's say 20 to 50 a day, not the, you know, two to 500 that you'd maybe see in uh, Summit County. Nice. Well, it's interesting how you partake in all different parts of it, Pete. How long have you been skiing for? Did you grow up skiing? Where did you grow up? I mentioned in the intro, you moved up from the United States. Did you grow up down there? I did. Yeah. I was born in Boulder. Parents bolted out of Kansas City, Missouri in the late 60s, early 70s and uh, landed in Boulder. So incredibly fortunate for me. I got super lucky out of that one and uh, grew up skiing at at, uh, Eldora. My parents got me on snow when I was two and had a chance to to ski Eldora a bunch. And then folks have had a place up in Frisco for for many, many years. And so, you know, it was all the Summit County resorts where we'd spend quite a bit of time. So, you know, especially Copper, that was probably the, the main one. A Basin was another place where we'd spend quite a bit of time. In fact, I was thinking about a, a story my parents had, a VW bus, because that's kind of what you have to have if you live in Boulder, certainly that time period. And, uh, we drove up there and they had one of those Boda bags, which I think are outlawed everywhere now. But uh, we got up there and my, we were complaining, my sister and I, about how cold it was in the back of the bus heading up to the ski area. And we got there and my parents were like, ah, get over it. It's fine. It's really warm. It's, you're no, it's not a big deal. And uh, I got up to the ski area and the uh, Boda bag had frozen 
on the drive Ooh. up to uh, the ski area. So <laughs> it's a little, so, it's a little different today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. D- different summit County ski scene for sure. <laughs> were you in, were you in race programs? Were you, did you just ski around with your family? What did your ski life look like as a kid? Well, I think like so many people that are into the sport, it was just the freedom of it. So I had a bunch of buddies from kind of all different places that we would just get together. And, uh, you know, it was the kind of the one place where your parents would just let you go. And so that's, that's just how we did it. I never raced. I never, I don't think I ever did that good. Even when we're doing photo shoots, I'm I'm not the best, I think at turning where that snowball is or that gate is supposed (laughs) to be. I've really just kind of rather do it when I feel like it. So skiing with the rat packs around the mountains. I, I, I always love watching those kids who are in the free ski programs and they just follow each other and they'll just seven of them in a row will just hit the same jump. So was it like that? Did you and your buddies just go around and try to find rocks in the woods to jump off of? Oh, absolutely. Grabbing the ski bus up to uh, Eldora after school and spending the night up there and you just, you know, lap in the same chair over and over again and the same route through the trees. And yeah, it was just a blast. Um, You know, a lot of those friends are still skiers in fact, I was able to pull a bunch of them together on a ski touring trip just a few weeks ago where I had 11 buddies from way back from all different walks. It was so cool to get everyone back together. Where'd you go? Uh, we went into uh, BC outside of Revelstoke into a, a ski touring lodge. Oh, wow. What, yeah, any highlights from that trip? Yeah. Oh, it was just, it was really fun to uh, just be able to reconnect with friends that you've known since you're two years old and still be able to get after it, get out all day for a long, long walk and uh, just share stories of the past. It's a pretty, pretty special experience. I was still good up there. Yeah, it was really good. Super good conditions. Bluebird days, got up on the peak. So you fall in love with skiing, bombing around Eldora and Summit County. I imagine some winter park thrown in there. It's one thing to love skiing, Pete, but you've reached that point where you know you want it to be part of your life. What, what was that point for you? Was there a moment did you just sort of stumble into skiing? How did you get actually into working in the ski industry? Well, I don't know if they still have this, but back then they had a career day. And so this was in ninth grade and uh, you had to choose a career path and find a place that would host you for a day and let you go to work. And I thought, well, man, that, there's no better way to get a, a ski day out of this than pick a ski area and go work. And so I called Copper Mountain and said, hey, can I talk to somebody in patrol? I've got this career day. I was hoping I could learn what it's like because I think maybe I want to do ski patrol when I grow up. And uh, they were kind enough to let me come up for the day. And of course, I thought I'll just show up and I'll ski the entire day. And I got up to the top of the lift and the guys are up there and we're chatting for a minute. And he's like, all right, here's a shovel. Go dig out some tower pads. <laughs> so. So that didn't deter you, apparently. So how did you go from there to actually having your first resort job? So I went to, I, f- I finished school at uh, CU Boulder and uh, got an international marketing degree there and then uh, decided it'd be fun to go just work at a ski area for the year. Mm-hmm. So I went up to Snowmass and worked at the Silver Tree Hotel at the time. And uh, I lived in a converted sauna in the Wildwood Lodge, <laughs> which is pretty sweet because it was ski in, ski out. And uh, worked at the front desk of the hotel there, which if, if you've ever done that job, it is deserving of the utmost respect because it is where just all the shit goes. Like really? <laughs> everybody that's angry that had a tough flight in or 
didn't like whatever they they were expecting in their place that's the first place they go and they're always a little salty when they do it <laughs> so that converted sauna did you have that to yourself did you have to share that with nine guys what did that look like oh uh, no i had it for like with three guys open space and uh you know just some of the best memories ever but uh it was so funny because it the entire room sloped to the drain in the middle of the the you know middle of the floor <laughs> So your your first experience of ski work life, you're digging out tower pads. Your second, you're dealing with angry, grumbling tourists who got in late on their flight and had a long drive up to Snowmass. But you kept going. So where did you go from there and, and, and why did you stay with it and not get frustrated? Uh, it was just the people are so cool. Just everybody you meet just have similar passions. They all love to travel. They love the outdoors. It's just all good people, you know, pretty special places as well. And uh, gone to Durango, Fort Lewis College for a year. And I uh, thought that was a pretty special place. And so I had an opportunity to go work at Purgatory and work there for the year. And that, that was at a time period where you know, Steamboat was, was kind of the first on the scene at doing air guarantees. And Durango had started with Vern Greco coming over from Steamboat started to put together these airline guarantees. So they had to fill the seats. And so my first job there was to fly to all these cool cities and try and fill those planes during the off season, by the way, and uh, go try and get as many people to fly and fill those seats up so that the cost at the end of the year for that air guarantee is less. So that was a, it was a really fun experience of just trying to understand the mechanics of just how guests book their trips, what are the complexity of putting that together from the guest experience side? And then on the destination side, how do you get the collaboration and and ways to try and pay for it so that it doesn't just all fall on the shoulders of the ski area to try and get visitors to come? I mean, that does not sound like an easy gig, Pete. And all due respect to Purgatory, which is an amazing ski area, but I'd imagine you knock on a door and say, hey, I want to talk about a ski trip to Colorado. And they're probably like, cool, uh, Aspen, Vail, Telluride. And you're like, no, no, purgatory. And, and so, you know, everything looks great until it's next to something 10 times bigger. How, how did you sell that? That's a really good question. Well, I mean, the Durango has always been a really well-known and popular summer destination. So you've got a little bit of name notoriety out of the the name of Durango at that time. So you kind of work that and then, it's a pretty easy flight from all the different cities we were going to. And, you know, Texas has always been a huge market for Durango and Purgatory area. And so um, it wasn't too hard out of the, that market because they felt pretty comfortable there. And uh, while most Texans really love to get in the suburban and drive and not mm -hmm. afraid to do that, it was pretty nice to have the flight option with a nonstop <laughs> right into Durango. <laughs> so you spend some time there, end up at Telluride. What took you over to Telluride? So I, uh, I had that opportunity, let's see, that opened up with uh, a really at an interesting time period. So Joe Morita was the, the, he's the son of the founder of Sony, owned uh, Telluride at the time. And um, Booth Creek had the management contract for it. And it was a really excited time. They just were opening up Prospect Bowl in the back. They had a whole bunch of really interesting things going. They had the, a strong air guarantee program going which really, it was kind of in trouble in terms of cost and uh, how much they, they were on the hook for. Um, mm. It's always good to put a cap on those when, when you have them. <laughs> and uh, so the, the team over there just seemed really cool. And it was an exciting destination. And 
if you've ever skied it, it's an awesome mountain, really just incredible terrain. And uh, so a guy by the name of Greg Bagney, who was big in the the bike business, hired me to come over. And uh, he's just such an unbelievable brand leader and has done just such incredible work. I thought, man, I might be able to learn so much from this guy. And uh, that definitely worked out to be the the case. It's also the place where I met my wife, which worked out really mm. good. In fact, I think <laughs> she was in the hiring committee to, to bring me in. And oh, wow. uh, so I got lucky on there in the end. <laughs> Is that part of the reason why she brought you in? Pete? Yeah. Was she, yeah. Was she, <laughs> you just thought there was a vibe there? I like to think that, but uh, I don't know if that was the case. It took me a lot of work. <laughs> so, so how long did you stay in Telluride? What, what was that like? What's it like to live and work in Telluride? Well, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's definitely uh, pretty far from anywhere. If you've been there, it's, you know, six and a half hours from Denver and the flights out of there can be spotty. It's about an hour to Montrose, which is pretty good air access out of there. But the town itself is pretty quintessential. I actually lived, I lived in Rico, which is about 30 minutes south up and over Lizard Head Pass, which was a, a journey every single morning. It was kind of a, a fun community where they shared the one, I think it was Thursdays every week, there was a police officer in the area. But other than that, it was just sort of like a free-for-all in that zone. <laughs> okay. It's kind of an interesting, interesting place. But uh, the town of Telluride definitely has a lot of characters in it, which makes it kind of an interesting and fun spot. In what ways? Like well, what are those, when you say characters, like what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, you know, I think some of us, you know, a lot of this because you've skied so many different places, but every place has its own like ski culture of how it goes. And Telluride's got this really funny culture where uh, they go down to, to chair nine at the base in town and they drop their skis and then they go, go get coffee and, and breakfast and nobody will touch their skis nor get in front of them. And, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't fly in a lot of other communities there. It definitely was the way it, the way it happened. I'm interested in this, that culture and that quirky, fun culture with the reality of life in Telluride, which has just become this incredibly expensive community, you know, along with Aspen, just one of these places where it's really, really hard for anyone at all to live. It's sort of the billionaires forcing out the millionaires kind of thing. How do these two things, these tensions coexist? Well, I, I, I kind of wonder, I guess, when I think back to living in a sauna uh, with three other guys, you know, I, I think it's maybe intensified, but I don't know if, if it's completely new problem, if you will. I think a lot of those challenges always existed. You know, the, they've always been really desirable places that makes them more expensive. And, and buying a place, you know, just like me, I couldn't, I couldn't afford a place in Telluride when I lived there. And that was quite a number of years ago. So I had to, had to go down to Rico and live there. So, you know, I think it's certainly now next level, maybe the dials up quite a bit, but I think a lot of those challenges are there. I think the positive thing is, is there's so much focus, you know, think about Aspen in terms of, you know, deeded approaches to try and make it accessible for people to buy. A lot of communities are making this a really big focus right now, which many weren't, you know, up until what, a decade ago, probably, or less? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you spent some time in Southwest Colorado, in the San Juans, then you move up to Copper Mountain and I-70. And I want to underscore this and set this up for the listeners who may not be as familiar with Colorado. There's really, in my mind, always been two Colorados. There's I-70 Colorado, which is Summit County and Eagle County and 
throw Winter Park in there and, and Steamboat's kind of its own thing. But then you have Southwest Colorado and it's just a much different vibe. It's a lot harder to get to, a little bit more space to move around. You're not going to see in general these huge crowds that you see at Vail or Keystone or Breck or Copper. Just talk about the difference from your point of view of that San Juan sort of Southwest Colorado culture and then going up to the I-70 mainline and just getting that crush of tourists and Denver locals every single day. Yeah. Wow. It's so different. I mean, it's just incredible. First of all, the competition is just fierce in Summit County, whereas in the Southwest, it's it's just remote enough. You just don't have that same level. The other thing is you don't have a, really a bedroom community that you, you do see in Summit County, you know, so you just didn't see the Friday evening arrival and Sunday evening departures the same way. It was really pretty spread out in the Southwest and so that was quite a bit different. The volume changes that happen over the course of just a day are just incredible. How all the resorts are able to manage those those swings and be able to staff for them is just just incredible. And having worked at Copper, you know, it's it's kind of always been the independent resort in Summit County up against Vail, I guess, really. And I just remember I felt like every single morning you're just waking up trying to throw your gloves off and just go for it. And uh, and try and, and battle for the the share of, of the front range at that point in time because copper at that at that point in time was really just doing mostly uh, front range visitation so it was really you know the Denver metro area that was fueling most of the visitation. I mean, how cool was that for you, Pete, to be back at the ski area and have this high up job at the ski area where you had your first ski work experience on ski patrol years before. Uh, it's just so special. I mean, it just speaks to how how lucky I've been just throughout my career to be able to to land there and and know it so well from growing up, and then be able to to spend time there. And like many ski resorts, you know, you've got guys like Chris Coleman that have been there. I think he just celebrated his fiftieth year this year, amazing um, at the ski area, and just just such wonderful people at that resort, and just super fun really, really smart and, and great leaders. Yeah, you know, to your point, Pete, Copper has done an amazing job considering it's surrounded essentially by four Vail resorts of holding its own, evolving into really a world-class resort. A big part of their brand and parent company Powdercore's brand has become these Woodward terrain parks. And I hosted Jody Church, who now leads mm-hmm. Breckenridge on the podcast yeah. recently. And she talked about running the Woodward Complex out in Tahoe uh, near Boreal Resort or, or at Boreal. Give us the perspective from Summit County on Woodward and how that was a differentiator from Copper and just how forward thinking that was at the time. Well, I think that's the thing that makes Copper so special is it's forced into that Challenger brand space. It, it has to do things different, which makes it just really, really cool because you kind of have to battle for every visit. And uh, as a result of it, the entire leadership was open to kind of new and different ways to approach it. What ended up happening is uh, IntraWest had a choice. They were going to put Woodward uh, either at Whistler or at Copper. They were also looking at Winter Park and they decided to, to do a mountain bike at Winter Park and uh, Woodward at, at Copper. And so that really just changed the entire environment at the ski area because it was this incredibly new thing that everyone was just trying to figure out. If you've ever visited Woodward, especially Woodward, Pennsylvania, 
there's magic there. It's just incredible. I mean, who would have thought that you could get a whole bunch of skate BMX and inline <laughs> um, kids together with uh, dance, uh, cheer, and gymnastics all in one, mm-hmm. you know, eight, 480 acre space and right. make it just so cool. And so to be able to bring that into the mountains as the first uh, winter sports indoor action facility like that, it was it was really special. So you're part of something special at Copper. Nonetheless, Ski Big 3 called in 2012. What drew you north to Alberta? Well, Dave Riley, who's at Sunshine, Banff Sunshine, called me and he said, hey, we've got this opportunity. You might want to take a look at it. And uh, Ski Big 3's board chair is a guy by the name of Francisco Gomez. He worked for the Fairmont Hotel Group for many, many, many years. And the guy is just super awesome. Really, really smart and knowledgeable. Really, you know, kind of the the best in the hospitality space. And uh, I got to chatting with him, and I thought, "Geez, he is such a cool guy." I have a feeling I could learn a lot from him. And then, you know, he started to share just where Ski Big Three is. And I, I like many, probably many Americans, had kind of a rough idea about Banff, mm-hmm. sort of where it was. <laughs> kind of what was there, but I had no idea how unbelievably amazing it is and that there are three ski areas there and there are two towns and it's in a national park. And I was like, what? This is not that far away. Come on. I didn't, how can this even exist? (laughs) And so, um, I had the opportunity to meet the owners there and, uh, you know, just their thinking and approach is just a really, really nice way to, to do business in a community and in a national park. And so that, that opened it up. And there's another thing in Banff that is quite unique, and that's called the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity. And it is a campus that sits right above town. And uh, if you've ever been to the Banff Mountain Film Festival, it was born out of that. It basically is this breeding ground for arts and uh, my wife was in the ski industry for quite a while. And she's like, all right, I've had enough of that. I'd like to get back to arts. And uh, she discovered the, the BAM Center and thought, well, that's where I want to be. And so it worked out perfect for both of us because sometimes it's hard when you make a move like that to, to get it to work for, for both. So lay this out for us, Pete. I, I was coming at this with a very American-centric mindset, which is, okay, these Sierras are all bundled together. They must all be owned by whoever owns them, some big corporation, or maybe it's the government. Like we have three state-owned skiers here in New York that are governed by this thing called the Olympic Regional Development Authority. And I, I kind of assumed Ski Big 3 was something like that, but I was wrong. Lay this out for us. What is Ski Big 3 and who actually owns these individual ski areas? Yeah. So this is super cool. Ski Big 3 is a joint venture of the three ski areas. So you have Mount Norquay, which is located right in the town, since it's right above the town. Banff Sunshine, uh, which is about 20 minutes from Banff. And then another 20 minutes down the highway there is Lake Louise ski area, as well as the hamlet of Lake Louise. And so each of them are owned by different families and they've owned them for, most of them have owned them for quite some time. So uh, Charlie Locke owns Lake Louise Ski Resort and uh, he's had it for for a number of years. And then... um, at Banff Sunshine, Ralph Skirfield owns that. The Skirfield family's had it in its second generation. And then in the town of Norquay, Jan and Adam Watrous purchased that not too long ago and uh, have done some really amazing things at the ski area, but also within the community uh, in Banff. So the three of them own what is Ski Big Three, the joint venture 
which really our mandate is to try and bring visitors in from all around the world and take care of them and try and make it as easy and seamless as possible for them. And first of all, it takes a minute to wrap your head around it because you have two towns, the three ski areas in a national park. But we're, we're only an hour and a half from Calgary, which is the, the international airport as a new international terminal. So it's super easy to get into the town of Banff. And then once you're there, basically walk out of the hotel in any spot in town and there's a bus that will take you to any one of the mountains. So they have a really well-oiled and dialed transportation. And and that was something that there's just a reality because it isn't a ski in, ski out community, which we celebrate. That's the thing that I think was my first observation is that when I moved there, that the conversation was, we're not ski in, ski out, but, and that was kind of like a long series of reasons why it's still okay. And we've been able to flip that over and really celebrate the fact that we aren't ski in, ski out, that you don't have a bunch of infrastructure at the bottom of the mountain. You have a bunch of lodging and these sort of, you know, made up uh, villages down there that really the, the ski experience is just that. But what that means is when you get in the town of Banff, it's a real town. They've got lots of nightlife, nightclubs, you know, restaurants are open late. There's a whole bunch of them. The food scene is just exploding in Banff right now. And uh, lots of activities. And what we've seen is that, especially in multi-generation, that people are looking for more than just the, the ski experience. And um, there's just so much of that to offer in Banff because it's always been a, and is known for a summer destination. A lot of skiers think that it's a ski destination, but it's really peak visitation happens during the summertime. It'd be similar to what Jackson would see in terms of that kind of volume. So as a result, you have a whole lot of operators that understand how to put experiences together for people, which then carries into the winter. So it kind of makes for this really cool, well-rounded place. There's so much in there, Pete, and there's so many directions I could go with that. I want to focus <laughs> on the town for a minute because, again, coming in as an American, I look around, oh, this town is great. It's dramatic. It has these huge mountains. It's walkable. It has, yeah, your junky souvenir stores, but it has a lot of actual businesses. And you can tell that it's not just for tourists. And my assumption is, oh, okay, well, this must be filled with second homeowners from Calgary who come here on the weekend and and the workers probably have to live an hour away and come on buses, but that's not the case. So tell us about Banff and how this town has set up a civic infrastructure that allows people to live there and work there. Yeah, it's that that is probably, especially having lived in so many other ski towns, the single differentiator in Banff, and especially as a resident. And that is because they have in Banff a thing that's called the need to reside clause. The town of Banff exists solely for the service of the visitor. That's that's why they created it, which is so cool to think that that is how a town would come to be. And that was because before the park ran the town, kind of as quasi-township, and I was like, well, that's not the thing we do. So they created the town of Banff. And uh, from that, they they started to figure out a way to make it so that essentially, if you live here, you need to be in service of the visitor. So that means anybody that's in the town of Banff, from the plumber to you know the frontline staff, they're really there in in service of that visitor. And uh, none of the the land is owned; it's all leased from the federal government, from the national park. And you can't buy there unless you have this need to reside. In fact, you can't even get a post office box. Uh, you can't get a lease or anything without showing your your paycheck stub and, and where you work. So that sets up for a really interesting dynamic. I mean, you know, we spent some time in Tahoe as well. And 
boy, when you see the, the area would show up on Friday night, everything lights up. And then on Sunday night, it's just dark. And uh, it's probably different from when we were there, but that just doesn't happen in Banff. You've got about something that's called around 8,000 as a population base. And about half of that would be frontline staff and the other half, you know, kind of stuck it out in future seasons. You know, they figured out how to make the two-year work visa stay into permanent. Then from there into to full citizenship. And I tell you, one of the funniest things that's different than the U.S. is the amount of conversations about where are you in your work visa or your permanent mm. residency, which is like a green card to <laughs> your citizenship is a conversation you'll hear almost every single day. Wow. Um, it's just incredible. So as someone who has lived in a number of different U.S. mountain towns, ski area, resort towns, would any part of this translate? Is there anything that U.S. towns could learn from it? And I realize there is a, a cultural gulf here as far as how that setup is and how it would translate. But, but are there any pieces of it that you could see working in Telluride or in Summit County or in Tahoe? You know, that's a really good question. I think, I don't know how some of this stuff would work just because, you know, you think about, it kind of starts with, with the land itself probably. And, you know, in terms of that lease, you know, you don't own it, you lease it. You can only be there if you work in service of the visitor. Now, there there may be ways that communities could look at subsidizing, and which probably already happens to some extent, you have to have a a certain income level and you do have to show residency in order to get deed restricted accommodation in, in many destinations. But what I think is interesting in the terms of Banff and something that maybe other communities can kind of think about is that, you, you know, infusing the frontline staff and the foreign workers that are there with the residents in that place and, you know, maybe even those people that are second homeowners is so critical because it's just a key, key piece of the culture. I mean, a lot of people that come to visit sort of live vicariously through those people that are working at the front, you know, at the lifts or wherever else in town because they're kind of living the dream. So if you if you separate that too much, I think you kind of take that little spark away. Yeah, I also I think the idea of building a town in a national park would be toxic in the United States. However, when you go to Banff, it is a very deliberately built community and there's no sprawl. And it's a very efficient town. As, as you mentioned, the mass transit earlier, the entire thing's walkable. It's all sort of stacked with mixed-use development. How does that work just from a philosophical point of view, right? Because you have the, one of the world's most amazing, most beautiful places. And, and I really can't overstate this. No matter where you skied, Banff is, is special. There's just nothing else like it from a scenery point of view. But how, how do you balance that with the fact that you have this town right in the middle of all of this like how do you balance that and then how does the town evolve over time because you can't just put a bunch of buildings there and keep them forever right the place has to grow and evolve and get different kinds of buildings over time so how, how does all that work yeah well banff is at its commercial cap there's no more commercial that can come into the town of banff which is kind of interesting so it's really just all infill and what i noticed when i first moved there was that when we moved there in 2014, it was a very national park feel, if you will, of sort of a lot of brown and green. And uh, the reinvestment, especially fueled during COVID, which was is kind of odd, but you know, so many businesses really put a lot into updating. 
And so it, it's amazing what can be done by just enhancing the existing infrastructure and space that's there. It's just like, like I was mentioning with the culinary scene, it's been really, really amazing to see some of the concepts that have come into town that are either in existing spaces or, you know, just kind of rebuilt. The other thing is there's a lodging group in town that it does a really good job of updating their lodging. And so I think between those two things are such important elements, certainly of a, a mountain or ski town is that it kind of stepped up the game for everyone. And so that, that enhanced it even more. So yeah, it, it is a very unique dynamic. You think about if, if Jackson was moved inside of Yellowstone and it's really difficult to kind of wrap your head around that concept, <laughs> um, but you know, something like 86% of people that come to Banff never leave the main street. And so what the park did, which was, I think, really smart, is they call it hardened spaces. And so they created these spaces that can take you know, sort of infinite amount of volume. And so they, they've done a really good job to manage that, you know. And so Banff, like many other mountain destinations in particular, is not challenged with the the people volume, it's the cars. It's really this, the vehicle element of it that makes it really challenging. And so there's been a ton of work into that. And the Watchers family that owns Norquay has done an amazing thing by basically they, they took over the train depot and uh, put a whole, uh, basically a transfer lot in there and then essentially handed the keys over to the town because the park and the town really couldn't figure out what and how to do it. And so he kind of just stepped in and solved that problem, or at least helped. It doesn't solve it, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, the other thing that we saw in COVID, like many places, is the main street closed and we got pretty active right away. You know, it was, just, it was all about safety and spacing, obviously, in the, the initial start of that, but it's evolved into experience. And I can tell you from a local, especially during those busy summer days, you'd find yourself walking down the alley just to try and get away from the people. And all of a sudden, you, that's where you'd run into your friends is the back alleys and having conversations <laughs> and stuff like that. And then uh, with Banff Avenue being closed and it's now in its second year test of that, it's just exploded this local place to just go hang out and enjoy the place. And so, you know, I'm confident that we'll be able to continue to, to push and move that. But as you know, in, in, in your conversations with a bunch of the resorts, none of these are easy and the loud few are, are, are very loud that mm -hmm. aren't for stuff. Yeah, North America is tough, right? It's, it's a car culture, particularly in America. You mentioned earlier, you were talking about we're not skiing, ski out, but, and then I'd imagine one of those buts was we have this really great transit system. So you have this car issue that the town is trying to manage. You also have a pretty good bus network. When I was there, I was able to just take the bus all around. I didn't rent a car and it was easy to get to all the resorts and I was dropped basically right at the base of the lift. So talk about those two pieces. The issue that you're having with vehicles, both in the town and getting up to the resorts, and then what's being done to mitigate that and how much that's been built out and kind of what the opportunity is to continue to grow that. Yeah, for sure. So the transportation system is pretty incredible. Each of the mountains runs their own transportation system, which is kind of unique, but it is unbelievable how they can flex the volumes. And they're running mostly motor coaches, you know, so it's the 52 passenger, you slide your skis underneath the bus. They're super comfortable. It is actually faster and easier to drive than because once, once you get up there, you got to find the parking. And so... And the buses have bathrooms. <laughs> I <can't> believe it. <laughs> Yeah, they're super nice. I mean, it, it yeah. is is a really dialed setup. And again, it was really a way to mitigate it so that it was a thing that you you left and said, oh, compared to any other place I've been, that was 
one of the best experiences getting to and from the mountains and really trying to kind of spur that part of the conversation within, you know, parking and, and vehicle traffic. Winter's not as much of an issue. It's really more summer, but I think there's a lot that can be learned from the summer in those days to help on the busier days in the wintertime. So this transfer lot is a, is a huge win for the community. They, they went to paid parking in town, which is another really good one to try and just get people to not leave their cars there for the entire day. And that's relatively recent. And most of the hotels also have parking there. So we do see people will, you know, rent a car. And one of the common things is they rent a car because they think they're going to drive to the mountain every day. They rent a car, they park it underneath the building and they don't touch it the entire time they're there. <laughs> so. so to your point about summer, Parks Canada announced earlier this year a plan to restrict personal vehicles from driving to Moraine Lake which is a very popular spot in Banff National Park. Any discussions ever about having similar restrictions around personal vehicles for ski traffic? Or, or is that just not enough of an issue that that's ever even come up? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of these traffic mitigations really are focused around the peak visitation time periods. Really, it's July and August. And that's really kind of the, the focus for that within the Lake Louise area. There hasn't been any conversations about that in the winter time, but you know, like all resorts, everyone's trying to figure out a way to get people to take the bus rather than drive one person one by one up to the ski areas. Well, one of the big projects that I've seen that I think would be just awesome would be this gondola from Banff, from the town of Banff up to Norquay, which right now it's a little bit of a shuttle ride around a lot of switchbacks. Talk about this project, Pete. Is this going to happen? Is this proposed? What would this be and where are we at with it? Well, it is proposed. There's still a lot of a lot of work to go on that one. It's part of a, a bigger approach that the Watrous family has worked on. And it starts with a train from Calgary International Airport that would go from the airport to downtown Calgary and then from there out to Banff. And so the concept is a hydrogen powered train that would move people to the train depot in the town of Banff. And uh, then that would also be kind of a bit of the transfer center in concept. And then they would love to be able to, you know, especially from a skier perspective, be able to take a gondola right from there up to the ski area at Norquay would really change the game. I mean, there's, you think about a lot of the other ski and ski out destinations, and many of them don't have a whole lot of true ski and ski out. It's still really more walking distance to that lift, which in this case would really make Banff ski and ski out. I mean, that would just be remarkable. And, and from an experiential point of view, there's really very little like that in North America. Obviously, that sort of setup is quite common in Europe. As far as Norquay goes, I mean, that would be great to have that train and then a gondola up. It, it's a pretty small ski area. It, it's around a tenth or maybe even smaller of the size of Sunshine or Lake Louise. Is there expansion potential for Norquay? Is that sort of the missing piece to, to get things going? Or, or is that always just going to be a small town ski area? I, it's just always going to be a small smaller ski area. There isn't a lot of opportunity to expand it. Really, I think the boundaries that they have right now are pretty much the boundaries they're going to have. So it's really just trying to figure out how to get the flow within the resort itself. So the concept of that gondola was to get up to uh, the base area and then from there up to the top of the North American chair, which is a, a pretty unique one if you've ridden on it. It's a... <laughs> It's a cluster of four chairs that speeds up and then slows down as it goes around the bull wheel. It is amazing, Pete. And, and I 
wasn't quite sure what I was looking at when I was standing above that thing. And, and I was like, what is going on? And, and it's sort of set up like a pulse gondola for listeners who have ridden one of those at maybe Snowmass that we were talking about earlier, just a, a series of cabins that travels on its own. What, what can you tell us about the history of that chair, Pete? Because it wasn't built that way, right? No, it was actually, it, it's, there's some historical photos of Marilyn Monroe on that, on that chair which are pretty cool. And there's a lot of history at Mount Norquay, including there's some old jump towers. Um, so there's judge towers that were set right off the base. There are these really cool cantilevered structures that they have visions of updating in the future. But the, the skiing off that is very legit. It's steep. There's really, there's no groom train off the top of that chair. It's a really fun fall line top to bottom. So, it, you know, what's proposed right now and in, in front of the park is the gondola that would go from the base up to the top of the existing chair, which services the Via Ferrata in the summertime. And so they have a, a two, four and a six hour Via Ferrata experience up there that's super cool and, and really well done. It was pretty early in the game in North America for, for Via Ferratas. So as far as, I want to go back to this train piece of it for a minute. The train is actually, a train line played a really important part in the development of Banff, or, or at least in the history of Banff in those Fairmont hotels. There's two of them, one in Banff and one in, I think, Sunshine. Tell us about the trains and the hotels and the history there. Yeah, so BC was sort of at risk of going to the U.S. And obviously for Canada, that would have been a problem because you know, lose a huge portion of, of coastal access. And so the deal that was made in order to make sure BC was part of Canada was to link a rail, railroad from east to west. And CP Rail, Canadian Pacific Rail, was the one that, that kind of got the golden keys to the castle, if you will, where they put the train line in across Canada. Once they got that in, they needed to figure out how to get people across it because there wasn't a ton of commerce the same way as obviously today. And so they built these unbelievably amazing hotels all across Canada and uh, really to try and pull people mostly from the east, so northeast U.S. and, and eastern Canada, to come west. And so within Banff National Park, they built two of them, uh, the Banff Springs Hotel and uh, the Fairmont Chateau Lake Louise. And uh, they're incredibly iconic resorts. It's something like 780 rooms in the Banff Springs Hotel. It wasn't that long ago that they winterized them. Uh, they were summer only. But you know, just thinking about people coming out in the 20s and 30s with their trundle cases for the entire summer <laughs> right. and They've had to figure out how to give experiences to people because they couldn't just have them hang out in the hotel. Mm -hmm. So they brought in a bunch of Swiss guides, um, especially in Lake Louise, and they started putting hike experiences together. So there's several tea houses in the area that you can hike to even today, but the Swiss guides would take you there. And Skokie Lodge is a lodge that's run by Lake Louise Ski Resort that is linked up by a lodge you know, right at the base of the mountain called mm -hmm. Temple, which we had lunch in there, Stuart. And yep. uh, that that connected all the way through. So it's Swiss guides that would take people on skis from uh, Chateau Lake Louise up to Temple and then on back to, to Skokie. And so each of these are really just designed out of the CP rail, which it was, they were the CP hotels that created this. And I don't know of any other places in North America that have a castle within their town. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. And those hotels, I felt like I was in Switzerland. They're surrounded by just these unbelievable mountains. I, do you know anything about 
the geology of Banff National Park, Pete? I, I know I know that's asking a lot out of a guy that runs a tourism board, but but do you, do you <laughs> can you tell us anything about those mountains? Because I, I had been in Tahoe the week before. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's Tahoe, the lake, and so gorgeous. And and I get to Banff and, and it just it made Tahoe look like freaking like North Dakota. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. So what do you know about that just incredibly special mountain range? Well, other than other than the fact that they're just unbelievably beautiful, um, they're definitely younger than the Central Rockies. So definitely makes them far sharper. And that, the thing that, I, you know, comparing it to the mountains that I grew up in and around is that there's not a front range, if you will. Mm-hmm. You just go straight into the peaks. Um, yeah. So you just hit these massive walls and moving from you know, 9,000 feet. I actually lived in Leadville, which is, you know, 10,200 feet. And uh, the town of Banff sits at 4,400, you know, so that that takes a minute to kind of wrap your head around. You're like, wait a minute, how's that possible with huge vertical gain, you know, at all the mountains there? So it is an incredibly stunning place. And in any direction you look, it's just sort of like gobsmacking beauty. So it's an amazing place. And you have these three areas that were established over the decade. I mean, nothing inevitable about them working together. And I know we started this conversation on Ski Big 3 a while ago. So let's get let's get back to this. When did they actually come together under this umbrella of Ski Big 3? When and why? And, and I guess more importantly, why has it worked? Why have they stayed together? It's been around for a long time. It, it was formed in the early 70s. So it's definitely been together for a really long time. Lad Snowcell started it really early in the game and came out of ski school. And there was a ski school that was operated at each of the three mountains. It it was a kind of a centralized ski school, if you will. So not one at each of the mountains. And um, now they all operate their own ski areas, but Ski Big 3 operates a guided program for in-resort guiding as well as instruction. And we do that mostly for privates now. And so that's really how it started. And then they kind of got to the place pretty quickly that anybody that comes into town, especially from out of the province, skis Sunshine and Lake Louise almost exactly the same amount and uh, a little bit less at Norquay. And so they discovered pretty quickly that if if they didn't work together, they probably would find their way to race to the bottom. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the starting point of it. And then it was really more about you know, over time, how do you create that sort of experience that you can make it end to end for those visitors? Because it is just so different than our regional visitation and and what our regional visitors want. So cooperation works within the park. I'm, I'm curious how you handle this, Pete, as the guy running Ski Big 3. You're right next to the Powder Highway, right? And this is a little bit similar to the Durango problem that I asked you about earlier, which is, yeah, Purgatory is great, but you're not that far from Telluride and Aspen and all these other places. So when you're sitting there next to Revelstoke, which is averaging 500 inches a year, has the biggest vertical on the continent, Fernie gets 360, you just have this, it's just a different vibe on the Powder Highway. How do you sell Ski Big 3 when you have big ski areas, evolved ski areas, not as much snow, not as fierce of terrain, I would say, as a as a whole? Like, What's the challenge there? And how do you sell that story and differentiate yourself from the Powder Highway? Well, access would probably be the first and foremost, you know, time poverty still exists, unfortunately, (laughs) even with a adjusted work setup. So, you know, the access of being able to fly into an international airport in an hour and a half, you know, be into with, you know, an easy drive in to uh, 
you know, a really lively town with three mountains in it. That's a good starting point for sure. You know, in terms of terrain, you know, especially having spent a lot of time in Colorado and a fair amount in Tahoe, the, the skiing at Sunshine and Lake Louise is legit. I mean, it's got some of the steepest terrain and as big as you'd ever want to have it, it's there. So, you know, I think it, it stands on its own for sure in terms of that terrain experience. You know, in terms of the big, big powder days, maybe we don't have those as much. But I think in terms of consistency, the thing that we've seen over and over again is that we can just deliver, you know, even if it's a low tide year, it's still a really great skiing experience. And uh, I think a lot of that is is fueled by just how the mountain makeup is. We've got a lot of terrain above treeline. And so the way that the, the wind moves snow around is pretty incredible and in how it fills in different parts of the mountain. And uh, one of the special things that Sunshine does, you know, really started out of necessity. They have one snow gun, snowmaking <laughs> machine. That's it. Wow. And uh, so they have huge teams that are out there moving snow fence and they farm it all all winter long. So you know, I've got a really strong train park program and it's all from just, you know, snow farming. So they set fences and run them up and all over the mountain. And they're able to kind of, you know, offset anything that would be moving around to, to make sure they get it where they want it. All right. So, Pete, we went into Norquay earlier and you gave us a little orientation in Norquay. You look at Sunshine and Lake Louise, two huge ski areas. Just give us sort of Sunshine and Lake Louise 101. What sets each of these ski areas apart? What makes them unique? How should a someone coming to Banff for the first time think about each of these and what the ski experience is like there and what they'll go there for? Yeah, sure. It, this one takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around, but at, at Sunshine, when you arrive, you get on a gondola that takes you 20 minutes up to really what is their base area. And they've got an 80-room hotel up there that's just right off the lift. But from there, it's sort of like if you were to look at a catcher's mitt, it's sort of, that's what the skiing is like. It sort of wraps around over 180 degrees with lifts that kind of go up in multiple directions. So it's it's a pretty unique setup. And you're not on the lift very long from that base area where you're up and out of uh, the tree line uh, and sitting above it. And from there, they've got a lot of groomed terrain that, that is accessed, you know, back down to that village. And then they have an area they call the dive, which you have to have Abby gear and a partner to be able to access into and inside that basin. It's just a massive amount of big, steep, long terrain that then you go down into an area that's called Goat's Eye. And that's actually accessed at a turn station off of the gondola. So there's a lift that runs up there as well. So Sunshine gets about twice as much snow as Lake Louise. Why is that? Well, you know, it's interesting. They kind of play turns a little bit. The flows are so different in how it comes in. Part of it, it, it could be because Sunshine just sits right on the Continental Divide. In fact, you you take a lift and you're straddling BC and Alberta. So some of the ski area is in BC. And uh, so I think that is part of it, whereas Lake Louise is just on the other side of the divide. And uh, so it, it does get a little bit different flow, but it it is interesting. They, they tend not to get the same storm systems as they come through. And then sometimes Lake Louise gets it and sometimes Sunshine does. So tell us about Lake Louise. How is it different from Sunshine? What kind of ski day are you going to get at Lake Louise? So Lake Louise has a very distinct front side and backside. So basically everything off of the front for the most part has really good groomed terrain all the way through it. And a couple of years ago, they opened West Bowl, which was 500 acres of new terrain. 
And uh, prior to that, it was really much more kind of a slack country access. So now that terrain is open, it drops all the way down to a, a cataract that takes you back across into the base area of the mountain. So you take lifts up to the top and then you can pop over the other side of it. And that's where most of the, the steeper terrain is. And so within that, they have kind of a, a zone that is, you know, ER, which has got a number of shoots across the top of that. Um, and then there's a, another area that's called Whitehorn 1 and Whitehorn 2 that sits on top of their summit chair, which used to be accessed by a palma that was this unbelievable, it was like a rite of passage to get up that thing. It was a super <laughs> steep headwall that you got up and over with a self-rescue rope that if you if you fell off, you needed to grab so you didn't just oh, wow. take everyone out down the line. It was it was awesome. It was it was a really cool experience, but obviously not as accessible as, as the chair is now. <laughs> right. So Lake Louise and Sunshine are these two big, really developed ski areas. Kind of a historical curiosity, Pete. If you look back at the Calgary Olympics, again, scariest just an hour and a half from Calgary, the ski big three scariest had nothing to do with them as far as where the events were held. Why is that? Why have none of the ski areas there ever hosted an Olympics? And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the Nick, Nick, I always pronounce it wrong, Nikiska, Nikiska, Nikiska was yeah. built. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Specifically for the Olympics. I mean, why didn't they just hold them in the park? That's a really good question. I think the, the thing you point back to is the, the national park. And I think it just at that point in time didn't jive with what the national park felt like was the appropriate thing to host, which, you know, I think from a ski area perspective, you find a little bit ironic because at Lake Louise, they've been hosting the first world cup every year for mm -hmm. like 30. So right. <laughs> uh, they definitely can host and manage uh, big events over snow with uh, limited infrastructure for sure. Is there any ambition or appetite to try again to attract the Olympics there and actually have them within the park? Or is that just, is that conversation over? Well, I think it's over for sure for now, um, mostly because there was a publicite vote that was taken in Calgary to bid for the Olympics and uh, they ultimately turned it down, which I find really ironic because if you talk to people that were in Calgary in 88, it was such a piece of pride for, for everybody that lived there that... I was really surprised that they didn't jump at the opportunity for it. So unfortunately, there, there's not even the opportunity to have that question. I think that there was more openness because of the success of the World Cup and the events that were held in there. And they've done done such a good job with it that I think that that conversation was open. But unfortunately, the door was closed before even really getting very far with it. So always interesting to have a private asset running within a national park. I want to talk specifically about Sunshine's recent parks lease renewal, which was completed around 2019. The updated document stated, and I'm, I'm quoting from uh, one of your local papers here, quote, either Sunshine would sell its infrastructure to parks for $1 or remove the infrastructure itself and return the land to its natural state, end quote, when the lease expired in 2060. So, so let me say that again. So Sunshine is a private business operating on this park's land. As a condition of renewing their lease, they agreed that at the end of the lease in 2060, they would either sell the infrastructure to Parks Canada for a dollar or take the infrastructure back and let the mountain grow back. Can you translate that for us? How should we think about this? Is, is Parks Canada sunsetting skiing in 2060? Just help me decode that because, again, this is something that my American brain cannot process. Yeah, well, I think there's still there's so much in that. 
and uh, the door is certainly not closed on that in general. And I think if, if I'm not mistaken, that lease and how they're written within national forests, the way that that lease, if it were to expire, would also require a trigger a certain number of things, whether it's removing of assets or handing the keys over. And so from that perspective, I don't think it's all that different because the intention is that you would renew that lease well before you would get to the end of it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a continued conversation with the parks and Dave Riley, who runs the ski area there, has done an unbelievable job working with the national park in a collaborative way to get to what works great for everyone. Because the the nice thing is that I don't think that a national park would want to run a ski area, especially because the ones that do run ski areas do such a good job with it. You know, if you think about it from a, a ski area or even a visitor perspective, if you know that 86% of the people that come to the park don't leave the main street, what can you do to try and get people to experience things off of that? Because these are places that people would never be able to experience to understand why they're so important to protect. So, Pete, do you have faith that Parks Canada intends to continue offering skiing? Because there's a reading of this that suggests they're not. Yeah, I think so. I really do. You know, maybe if they had an opportunity to do it over again from the very beginning, they would have done something different with it. But the skiing experience is there now. And, you know, one of the key elements for the park's existence is for the, the enjoyment of Canadians. And clearly, uh, Canadians enjoy the ski experience in Banff National Park, that's for sure. This, this might be too granular a question, Pete, but I just want to push on this point a little bit. It, do you have any sense of what was behind this idea of either selling the infrastructure to the parks or removing the infrastructure? I mean, what, I just can't make sense of that, like what the motive behind that would be. Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't speak to that. I'm not sure what specifically that is. And, you know, really, it's... It's about getting the relationship and continuing the great relationship with the park in a way that, that works for everyone. And uh, that seems to be going really well right now. Do you have any insight into whether Norquay or Lake Louise have similar covenants in their leases or, or when those leases might be up? No, I don't have those details. I know that, that Norquay is working, you know, as, as you can see by the, the gondola submission, which they do have in, in their master plan to replace that lift. It's there, but I'm not sure exactly how the terms are set up. One thing that I thought was interesting about these master plans, Pete, is I was reviewing Lake Louise's master plan that was published in 2019. And I was like, oh my God, they've already built two of the lifts in it, the lower Juniper and the Summit lift. They're about to build two more, the upper Juniper and the, the Sunshine. And I'm used to studying these U.S. Forest Service master plans that all ski areas operating on Forest Service land, and there's over 100 of them in the U.S. at the file every 10 years. And it's like, they'll put, you know, 15 lifts on there and, and they'll build two of them. It just, it, things just, they go slow in the U.S. Do you have any sense of what may be different about either the bureaucracy or the relationships or the regulations in Canada that might allow these plans to move along faster than they typically do in the United States? If you talk to any of the resort owners, I don't think they would agree that anything moves fast at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in fact, if you talk to Charlie about his current master plan that was approved, he said, yeah, when I started this process in 1981, (laughs) um, you know, and so there's, there's so much work that went into 
just getting to that approval. So I think there was so much more done up front that, that was just required in order to even get that master plan approved. There, I can tell you one thing in the national park, nothing moves fast. Okay. That's for sure. <laughs> That's interesting. All right, let's wrap up here today, Pete, with a talk on passes. Ski Big 3 was an early adopter of the Icon Pass, one of the inaugural members. Going into season six now, so I'd imagine you've had chances to pull the parachute if you wanted to. What has kept Ski Big 3 involved on the Icon Pass for going on six years now? Well, early, early on when, when it was forming, you had an opportunity to look at both. And this is when Icon was really just getting off the ground. And uh, it became really apparent that the transparency from the Icon team was going to be really, really strong. And the opportunity to be able to be around a table and around resorts that are the best in the world is, you know, why would you pass that up? And it's come to fruition. They're an awesome group of people to work with. They're super smart. They're really on their game. They provide so much information. They're super helpful when it comes to just, you know, what are best practices, what's working, what's not working. Um, it's an, an incredibly collaborative thing and, and it works really good for us. I mean, it's mostly... U.S. visitation, we see a lot out of Canada just because they do own Blue and Trump Blanc. And so there's there's high visitation from the east that comes and uses their passes with Ski Big 3. So yeah, it's it's been nothing but a, a positive experience for us. I think that also what's helped is that we're seeing long-stay visitation when people are using their passes. Uh, we don't have a lot of weekend visitation with that pass. So that works really well for the entire community. And everyone kind of wins out of that. How significant of a portion of Ski Big 3's business has this become as a destination driver? You know, it's been huge for us. I mean, it is a, a significant portion of our visitation. Now we've definitely seen channel shift. We've seen, you know, say, for example, ski clubs within the U.S. have always been pretty high visitation within within all the ski areas. And you're starting to see them choose a pass at the beginning of the year and then using those as the selection of resorts that they go and use on their group trip during the year. So those people would have bought a lift ticket in the past that are now coming through a, an icon pass. But we think that's great. You know, I think we also see that as an opportunity to get into places that we haven't in the past or, expo you know, expose Banff, which, you know, quite honestly, still has awareness challenges within the U.S. to, to get on that list. And I guess the thing that icon's given us the most is it's helped move us up the short list closer and closer to the come this year. So you were the first, along with Boyne Cypress Mountain, the first Canadian ski area, and, and obviously the two that Altera own that you just mentioned, to join. And, and you've since gotten a lot of company with Panorama, Red, Revelstoke was also an early adopter, but not out of the gate, and Sun Peaks. As Icon has built out that network right next door in British Columbia, and I realize Cypress is coastal, but has that had a positive impact on you? Do you find folks, and I don't know if you have access to information, but do they fly into Calgary, spend some time at Banff, then go circle the Powder Highway? Yeah, we definitely see, I think that's the the aspiration. You know, I think people, I know myself, when I want to go on a ski trip, I'd love to link up as many resorts as I can, and then often uh, time is a barrier in that. But it works really good in terms of linking up we, we've seen a lot of Revelstoke to Banff over over time. We're seeing split stays between those two and more ski safaris happening with the linking panorama into it. But you're still looking at three and a half hours between those resorts. You're going to have a certain number of people that are just going to have to choose a destination. But overall, I think it's really helped just to, to get 
the idea of going to Canada and skiing on the map. And then that's where we have to start as Canadian skiers is to say, come to Canada and go skiing, go north and then choose the resort that you want to go to. And uh, we're confident enough the experience is going to be amazing. You're going to want to pick an, another one or in, in our case, we're, we're hoping that you're going to come pick this as your spot where you want to go on your annual trip. So Ski Big 3 from the beginning has been listed as a joint destination on the Icon Pass, which means if you have an Icon Base Pass, you get five days to spread across all five. You know, you could do a day at Norquay and two at the other ones. You could do all five days of sunshine, however you want. Icon Pass, you get seven. Take us back here, Pete. How much of a conversation was that to get to that point? Did you ever consider giving each ski area its own bucket of days? And ultimately, why has that been the right choice long-term? Well, because it's such a heavy kind of destination program, it really made sense to come through Ski Big 3. And so as a result of that, it just made sense. We actually never had a conversation about adding or stacking up days Hmm. across all the different resorts. It was always really just uh, around the five or seven days, which you know, fits really well for us. I think that's a good approach for Ski Big 3 and for, for our resorts. So folks can also access Sunshine and Lake Louise on the Mountain Collective, and they do have their own stacks of days, if I have this right, two at Sunshine, two at Lake Louise. Norquay is not. Talk about the different structure that you agreed upon for Mountain Collective, why you left Norquay out and decided to separate Sunshine and Lake Louise. Well, this was at a time when we were trying to figure out how to grow Canada. You know, you never want to be on one of these programs and feel like you're just taking you know, part of the reason why you're on the program is you're helping fuel pass sales and getting people to buy and then using those passes at other places. And then it, you know, reciprocates um, and everybody wins out of it. And I think the thing that, that we discovered early on within the Mountain Collective is that the regional clustering of ski resorts help fuel that. And you see a lot of that out of Utah in particular. And so from that, we wanted to try and figure out a way to grow Canada in general first step in that was to get the pass just over, you know, to a meaningful number of days where we felt like we could sell that within the Calgary and Alberta market with Revelstoke on the program. And that worked really, really well. And so then, you know, bringing in Panorama and Sun Peaks also helped do that and then start to open up BC in terms of sales. And so I think really that's where it was, is just trying to get a little extra usage out of it and sort of breaking it apart at that point in time really made the most sense. You know, I hosted Christian Knapp, who played an important role in founding the Mountain Collective on the podcast recently. And I want to ask you the same question I asked him, which is, how is the Mountain Collective still here, right? Because I I figured, and a lot of others did, that when Icon debuted, it was going to crush Mountain Collective under its shoe and walk away. But the thing has persisted. And honestly, I think it's more relevant now than ever because the Icon Base Pass has lost a lot of value as a lot of resorts, the top tier resorts have fled for the Icon Base Plus Pass. But I would love your perspective, Pete, as someone who's been right in the mix for a number of years now. Why do you think that the Mountain Collective has been so resilient when the Icon Pass offers more days at most of the same resorts plus a whole bunch of others? Yeah, well, when you look at just how they stack up, Icon Mountain Collective in particular, but also when you start looking at just the regional offering passes and cards and things like that, Mountain Collective is is kind of fits in there perfect. It really it works well as sort of like the sampler, you know, going and, and just kind of tasting a bunch of different places for the very first time. And uh, I think it, it provides itself as a really good feeder into the Icon Pass. 
where you, you know, just even get the notion of, you know, rather than just buying a lift ticket, what if I have something that I can use more frequently? And so it's a step up from the single mountain frequency card into multi. But overall, I think why the program works is just the collection of resorts and the people around the table. It's just, it's an unbelievably smart, great collaborative group of people. You know, you think from the outside that you'd have people kind of chirping about, oh, where's my photo? And I'm not talked about enough. And sometimes these these joint efforts can happen that way. I've never heard that one time ever. Everyone really walks in the room thinking about it from a bigger perspective of growing the pie. And I think, you know, that has really helped with the the program, even when resorts have come on and off it, but also just as a way for us to think about how we can work together to get more people into the sport. Do you think Mountain Collective is here to stay? Icon, as I said, it's going into its sixth season and Mountain Collective keeps losing partners and it just keeps going on. Do you, do you think this is a product that's going to be around for the next decade? I think so. I mean, I, the amount of sales and visitation that we're seeing within Western Canada is really, really high. Within Utah, now that Snow Basin and Sun Valley are back on the program, really changed the dynamics of that for Idaho and really for Idaho, Montana, even up into Washington. That really changed it. Having Snowball on the program this year was a really, really big win. And we definitely saw that happen. You know, we lost Southern California or the Mountain Collective lost Southern California with Mammoth, but Northern California still held strong with Sugar Bowl, which is just an awesome ski area. It's a really cool, great fit for Mountain Collective. When are we going to get some more East Coast ski areas? Oh, we're trying. <laughs> I know you I know you shared such a great list with me and I know you've talked to Todd and Todd and I have had this conversation many times, the two of us talking, you know, we've looked at this La Massif uh, came on the program mm-hmm. uh, last year, which is a really great addition and we're trying to figure out a way to to grow in that Quebec market. There's something like seven million skier visits within wow. the, the Quebec market. And so if, if we can grow a regional cluster in there, you know, it's it's tricky because you've got a whole bunch of Western ski resorts that start looking at vertical change and they're like, Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> and so, we, you know, sometimes you kind of have to think about it in terms of the market perspective and just, you know, what's the reality of it there. And Lama Sif was a really good win and trying to find more that might fit within that. There's a couple that are in conversations right now and we're hoping we could get a Northeast US close on a, on a couple and mm, nice. trying to work through that list that you've shared with us. So, all right. Uh, well, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll look out for my commission check. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as, let's wrap up with this. The three ski areas, I know that the big selling point is one lift ticket, all three ski areas. How does that work from a pass point of view? Because these are independent businesses. Do they have like a joint season pass product? They all offer their own. Can, can you go ski at one if you have a pass at the other? How, how does that work for locals? Well, for locals, it's a little bit different. So we do offer a pass that's good at all three mountains, the Ski Big 3 season pass. So it's unlimited use. It's crazy. We see something like an average of 42 to 47 days. Um, in that range on that pass, it's high, high frequency usage, good long season helps that within ski big three, we offer one lift ticket that gives you access to all three mountains. You order it and we'll deliver it to the hotel. So it's waiting for you on check-in. So you just grab that thing and, and hop on any one of the buses up to the ski area. We have our own rental retail set up downtown, you grab your skis and get fitted. And then we deliver them back to the hotel. You can basically leave your skis anywhere. We prefer not on the highway, but like <laughs> any one of the mountains are in town and we'll pick up the skis 
forum there as well. So we try and make that really easy. But that local pass does really good, especially when you see those different storm cycles coming through sometimes between Sunshine and Lake Louise. It's kind of nice to have access to all, or if you just have an hour and want to get out, you can just zip up to Norquay. It's, it's pretty easy. You know, Pete, about those lift tickets, when I picked mine up at the hotel, I was a little surprised to get a lift ticket and not an <laughs> RFID card. Yeah. With the larger resorts these days, most of them have transitioned. What's the holdup with Ski Big 3? Is it just, is that one of these things where you have three different owners and that technology piece is hard to work out? Do you just like the simplicity of the older style? What are your thoughts on eventually transitioning away from paper lift tickets? Well, that's a really good question and point of conversation that's that's happening all the time. Because each of the mountains are a little bit different. You've got a single portal with one gondola at Sunshine that you basically get scanned once and you don't need it again for the rest of the day. They don't really feel like the the value of scanning at each lift in terms of helping restaurant flow or you know where people are on the mountain at a given point in time is, is the kind of information that they need that maybe some of the other ski areas might need to have just from a, a volume standpoint. And so I think the conversation has really been more about how do you leapfrog the technology and get into you know mobile, hopefully, and make that happen. I think the hope and the intention is for sure to get there. I think the question is what's the right methodology or approach to do it. And uh, I think none of the resorts feel like it, it's just the right thing yet. You know, So I, hopefully we all get there together. Each of the resorts are on the Paradox ticketing system. So they're all on the same system, a group out of Quebec, uh, Mountain OS, and uh, they're all using that system right now. So it's pretty great that they're all on one platform. Uh, so it'll be a little bit easier to kind of make that next move when it's the right time for it. All right, Pete, with that, I will let you go. I took a lot more time than I said I would. I know you're actually on vacation this week. So thank you so much for all of your insight and perspective on this amazing collection of mountains. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can make some turns together again soon and hit sunshine this time. Yeah, Stuart, it was really fun skiing with you uh, at Lake Louise this year. Next year when you come, we'll we'll hit all three. Maybe we can just knock them out in a day and then, and then we'll go back to from there. But I really appreciate your time. Thanks for your passion for the sport. We're really lucky to have you. Thanks so much, Pete. Really appreciate it. That's Pete Woods, president of Ski Big 3, representing Sunshine, Lake Louise, and Norquay. Pete, thank you so much for that. What a way to make an entrance into Canada with someone who gets the full scope of North American skiing. I so appreciate you, Pete, and your insight, and for taking your time to share that with all of us today. So, what now? What does it mean for the storm to have entered Canada? Well, that simply means I will be rotating conversations with the leaders of Canadian resorts into the podcast lineup, just as I do now with the West and the Midwest and the Northeast. I am going to start slow here. I have got a lot to learn, and I want to do this thing right. But... I already have my second Canadian pod scheduled with Sun Peaks General Manager Darcy Alexander, and that will be dropping very soon. Remember, the very best way to get that and all episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter. And paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. 
Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.